If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to the book of 1 Timothy as we start this new sermon series together. Entitled it, The Church That God Always Wanted, Not The Church That You Always Wanted. And we're going to be spending a considerable length of time in 1 Timothy as we work through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we could be in 1 Timothy for the next year, if not longer, as we make our way through God's Word. So if you have a copy of, this, of God's Word, I invite you, as I said, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We'll read together what the Lord has placed upon my heart to share with you this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my child, in the faith, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This morning we're only going to look at verse 1 as it reads, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by commandment of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus our hope. I think it's important this morning before we start that we understand the historical context of where this letter is with regards to its placement in church history. This is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, Timothy his disciple. We understand as we come to this letter that the first premise that we have to always come to is this is simply a letter from one man to another and yet it is and has the authority of God as God's word. 1 Timothy was written after Acts 28. It is at least eight years after Paul's ministry in Ephesus where he spent three years stay there. This letter is written to Timothy as Timothy is in Ephesus dealing with the problems within the Ephesian church. Historians date this letter in and around 63 to 65 AD important for us to understand that this is merely 30 years after the crucifixion of Christ, 30 years into the first century church, 30 years into the new covenant, and yet we have problems already appearing within the church. Through this letter, Paul is going to address the difficulties that is facing with false teaching coming from false uh, elders, false Preachers, In particular, he's going to address the false teachings with regards to food, marriage, sex, lifestyle that is becoming of those who claim to be a follower of Christ. Women teaching, the apparel of women and the lack of modesty with regards to them not only within the church context but within their own cultural context and giving us proper roles of eldership and of pastors. This is why 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus are known as the pastoral epistles. They are where we turn to whenever we want to understand church life and the house of God itself. We understand as well that this letter comes within Paul's fourth missionary journey. Paul had been in his first stay in prison in Rome. He was released and he, he goes once again to visit the churches that he had helped plant. 
And on that journey, he leaves Timothy in Ephesus and he goes on to Macedonia. And we understand that if we read verse 3 of chapter 1. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies and promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. There is major problems, major concerns within the church in Ephesus. And yet we also understand that Paul realised this whenever he was indeed in Ephesus, whenever he was dealing with the church. And we understand some of these problems if we even turn to chapter 3 in 1 Timothy, verse 14 through 15. When he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mysteries of godliness. So Paul writes this letter because he has left to go to Macedonia and he is sending this letter to Timothy, who's back in Ephesus, dealing with the problems within the church of the Ephesians. And Paul says, I'm not going to get back to you. So here's a letter of instruction for which I want you to read to the church, for which I want you to stand upon. It's important that we understand that. First of all, we understand the context of why Paul is writing this letter and who Paul is writing this letter to. We have to ask ourselves in the very beginning of chapter 1 when it says, Paul, who is Paul? Paul is his uh, Greek name. He's also known as Saul, which is his Jewish name. His name means little or small. So when we think of Paul, this mighty man of God, this, this cornerstone and pillar for the truth, we have to understand that within the context of the Greek time period, where the Greeks were completely obsessed with the external, they're obsessed with the body, they're obsessed with strengthening themselves Outwardly, In fact, if we had time, we could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 whenever they actually make fun of the physical stature of Paul. How he was small and gangly and weak in stature. And yet, he is strong and a mighty warrior for God. So his name is very much fitting. Paul, meaning small. We also understand who Paul is from different passages in Scripture. And I think it's important for us before we go any further to really lay that foundation upon ourselves, to remind ourselves of who Paul is. If you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. It's left in your Bible from where you are. Philippians chapter 3. Paul describes who he is. And he says in chapter 3, verse 5, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. And what does that mean? It means that Paul identifies himself as indeed a Pharisee when it comes to the law. So immediately we understand that he's from the tribe of Benjamin, the prominent tribe within, the tri- within Israel itself. In fact, 
Paul or Saul is the foremost name within the tribe of Benjamin. He is named rightly. He has the, the, the genealogy. He has the historic line of Benjamin. And then he says that he is a Pharisee, which gives us a look into how intelligent he was. To be a Pharisee, you had to memorize every single word of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Paul would have been able to, to tell you chapter and verse, word for word, of every single book of the first five books, or sorry, every single chapter of the first five books of the Bible. He goes on and says, As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So not only did he have the zeal for Judaism, he had the zeal for the word of God and the Old Testament covenant. He had that much of the zeal that anything that came against Judaism at that time, he was a persecutor of it. He stood for everything that was the law of Moses. The books given to them by God through Moses. He was a persecutor of the church and as for the law, he himself outwardly was blameless. He was a man that took the word of God serious. He had a zeal for God's word. He stood on the morality of God's word. Blameless, I am, he says. Tribe of Benjamin, I am. All the things that a Jew would have wanted to have as their background, he says he has. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted it as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I I may gain Christ. Paul gives us a glimpse here into his knowledge, into his history with regards to how, how he was a Jew. But he also gives us a foretaste when he says there, a zeal is a persecutor of the church. And I want to look at that a little bit this morning before we go any further. You know, we think of Paul, do we understand that he is a murderer? Do we understand that he was a tormentor of the early church? We read of it, if we turn left in the Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Verse 58, we understand that this is the beginning of the Holy Spirit working through Jerusalem. And here we have the first of many martyrs, the martyr of Stephen. Chapter 7, verse 58 says, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This was the leaders of Judaism. This was the Pharisees. This was the followers of the Pharisees who saw this new gospel, who saw this moving away from the old covenant system of works and into the new covenant system that we stand in today of faith alone, in Christ alone. And what they did was they cast him, being Stephen, out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Historians believe that Saul at this stage is in his 20s. He is a man who commands respect even within the circles of the Pharisees. But at the time of the stoning of Stephen, not only did did Paul approve of it, he was the architect of it. And those who cast the stones laid their garments at the feet of Paul. We read 
in the beginning of chapter 8 in Acts in verse 1. Again, Saul approved of his execution. And there rose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravishing the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This was a man who was feared by the early church. This was a man who took no prisoners. This was a man who thought that that us and our knowledge of Christianity and who Jesus Christ was, was a complete apostasy against the Holy God. He wanted them dead. He wanted them tortured. He wanted them punished. And this is the, the man in whom God is going to entrust to take the very gospel that he hates to the corners of the world and in particular to the Gentiles. This is the man that God is going to be able to use who his father was and who his family was. How this man was born a Roman citizen and yet had all the attributes to being a Jew. He was a man who was fully Jew but also completely fully in line with what is a Gentile. His mother was a Gentile. His father was a Jew. He was going to be able to use the status he had from being from the tribe of Benjamin to go into the synagogues. He was going to be able to use his name, his Greek name, Paul, to reach the Gentiles. He was going to be able to travel as a missionary freely because he was a Roman citizen. None of these things are perchance. They're all aligned for God's work through bringing the gospel to the nations. We also understand that through this time of persecution that Paul was ravishing the church he then goes and on the way to Damascus he has an encounter with Christ himself on the road to Damascus he is blinded by Christ he then is born again saved and baptized and made ready for bringing the gospel to the Gentiles we also have an understanding of who Paul is if we turn to the book of Galatians. If you turn with me there, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers... That the gospel that was preached by me, this is Paul speaking, is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. If you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by this grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. We understand that Paul 
after his meeting with Christ on the road to Damascus, is immediately changed. He understands that his zeal for Judaism is misplaced. He understands his persecution of the church is misplaced. This is why Jesus says to him, if you had time to read this morning, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He immediately is changed. And he goes off then and spends the next three to three and a half years in the wilderness being taught the gospel, not by man according to this one we just read in Galatians, but by Christ himself. Just as the other twelve spent three to three and a half years with Christ ministering to them and teaching them, getting them ready for what he had for them to do, he does exactly the same thing to Paul. This is vitally important. As Paul is going to cite this and what we turn to next in Timothy. If you turn there with me please. Back to Timothy chapter 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Why is that important when we come to read this letter? It's hugely important. To be an apostle, you not only had to see Jesus Christ physically, but you also had to be called and ordained and commissioned by Christ personally. That's what it means to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And Paul here in this letter is setting the tone so that anybody who is going to hear this read within the church in Ephesus knows one truth. This is not the words of a man who has just simply heard the gospel from the twelve. This is from Paul, the zealous persecutor of the church turned saint by intervention of the Holy Spirit through Christ. This is Paul who knows the law, who knows the word of God in the Old Testament, but also knows the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I am an apostle called by Christ, commissioned by Christ, and taught the gospel by Christ himself. I did not hear it third or second hand. I heard directly from the mouth of our Savior and our King of Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul is the only apostle who uses that wording, Christ Jesus. The other apostles always say Jesus Christ. For the other 12 minus Judas, if you want to add in there, Matthias, all knew Jesus in his full human form when he was the fullness of God and the fullness of humanity. And they call him Jesus Christ because they knew Jesus as the man before he became the Christ. Paul here, however, knows who Christ is for he saw Jesus in the road to Damascus in the fullness of his deity raised. It's an important note. He always puts the Christ before Jesus for it is Christ whom he was commissioned by. Both the same but an important distinction Nonetheless, So, why does Paul cite the fact that he is an apostle of Christ? What does the word apostle mean? Apostle simply means one who is sent. One who is commissioned. An ambassador of anything. If we wanted to use that word today, we could call an ambassador to the UN apostle if we wish. It is the right terminology for that word. But what does he mean by an apostle of Christ? What he means is that he is different from other apostles. Right throughout scripture we have others who are an apostle of the church. For example, 
If we had time to turn to Acts 14, verse 14, Romans 16, verse 7, Galatians 1, 19, 2 Corinthians 8, 23, and many others, we would see people like Barnabas who are called apostles. But they are an apostle with a small ed. They are apostles of the church. They are proclaimers of the gospel given to them by apostles of Christ. Why is that important? Because there's a massive difference between an apostle of the church and an apostle of Christ. The main difference is an apostle of Christ was different and distinctive. They had certain giftings that apostles of the church didn't possess. An apostle of Christ was sent directly by Christ, given unique and unparalleled gifts by Christ, such as knowing divine truth. They fully understand and fully understood the complexities of the gospel in its simplest form. They were given unique and unparalleled gifts to cast out demons, to heal the sick and to do many signs and many mighty wonders. Why? To affirm the gospel and the new covenant of grace that had been given to the church. Paul cites who he is and he cites by what authority He is writing this letter to Timothy. I am not Paul, an apostle of the church. I am Paul, an apostle of Christ. Chosen, elected, and sent out, and given direct divine authority by Christ to preach his word. Did Timothy not already know that? Of course he did. So why then does Paul write this to Timothy? Is it simply a format that he wants to go down through? The answer is no. Paul knows that Ephesus and the Ephesians are in such disarray that their love of the false gospel and the false religion is being embraced. That they are wholeheartedly going to reject everything that is in 1 Timothy. So Paul cites it by saying that this comes not from Paul who is simply a theologian and an expounder of the Pentateuch, or even Paul the Pharisee. This is Paul, the big A apostle, sent and chosen by Christ, delivering this message through my servant, Timothy. You cannot reject it, for it is not Paul's words, it is Christ's words. Massive authority here in the opening gambit of this letter. What were the loves that the people in Ephesus had? They were embracing false religion. They were embracing an immoral lifestyle. They were embracing drunkenness. They were embracing a love for money. They were embracing costly apparel. They were letting women teach. The entire church was completely rampant with false doctrines and false teaching. And not only was that for that then, which is 30 years after Christ had died on the cross, but today for us some 2,000 years later, this book of the Bible is highly contested. Today, liberal theologians say that Paul could not have written this because the rebukes that are in 1 Timothy are so strong. The ramifications of understanding 1 Timothy as being God's divine, holy word, that it cannot be questioned, that it cannot be taken out of its context, has such an effect on the church body that it is rejected by many scholars. Paul knew this. 
So not only does he cite the fact that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, he emphasizes it by weighing in by commandment. Not only is it from me, Paul, the apostle of Christ, it is also by commandment. The original Greek word there is royal command. It is unquestionable. You cannot question this. It comes from the king. Sent by a king's messenger that is set apart. This word is coming to you, church in Ephesus, so that you know it is divine word of God. You cannot question it. And he goes on to add to that. By saying, Christ Jesus, by commandment of God. For those in Ephesus who were preaching a different kind of gospel. For those who were preaching that Christ was not and fully divine. That God and Christ are not equal. They were denying the Trinity. They were denying the gospel, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. They were rejecting the truth. He cites here, not only is it a command from God our Savior, but also from Christ Jesus our hope. They are the same. They are equal. They are one. This is whom the command comes. Royal command. It's not negotiable. And it comes from God, our Savior. Why not Christ, our Savior? Why does Paul deliberately write a commandment of God, our Savior, and Christ Jesus, our hope? For the very thing that was happening today was happening then. We live in a day and age where people still see a false gospel. They embrace a false gospel that God, the God of the Old Testament, is angry, wrathful, vengeful. Hallelujah, we don't worship him anymore. Praise God that Jesus came and showed his true attributes. Thank goodness that it is Jesus whom we worship and Jesus whom is our Savior. Paul says, no. It is God from the foundation of the world who set apart our salvation through the sending of his Son. It is God whom we worship and God whom saves. The God of the Old Testament is the same then, today, and will be the same tomorrow. His word doesn't change, his attributes doesn't change, and his saving uh, ministry throughout church history will not ever change. That's why we have to come against brothers and sisters who say, I don't worship the God of the Old Testament. Well, then whom do you worship? For there is only one God, and Christ Jesus is his Son. The fullness of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are one, unchanging. He's deliberately saying here, it is God who saves you. Do not forget that fact. In fact, we just read it this morning in that psalm, in verse, in fact, I'll just turn to it again. It was verse 24, verse, uh, sorry, Psalm 25, verse 5, where he cites in that psalm, it is God our Savior. You could turn to many different places, even off the top of my head, I think of Mary and her song where she sings to God and she finds out that she's going to have Christ Jesus as her son, she sings about God, her saviour. We need to make sure we never lose that distinction. It is God who saves. In fact, that opens up a whole theology to us. Paul here, who understands salvation, understands it is God's mercy and grace whom he chooses. It is God who saves. 
It is not man who chooses salvation. It is God who changes our inclination. It is understood from a theologian point of view as monergistic regeneration. What does that even mean? It means monergistic regeneration means that for you to have faith in God and in the gospel, God has to regenerate your heart first. You're incapable of coming to the knowledge that you need to be saved, or the knowledge that you're in sin and in darkness, unless God sovereignly chooses to change your heart and your disposition. It is God who chooses. It is God who draws. It is God who saves. It is not synergistic. It is not that we somehow, in our own strength and our own power, can realize our depraved state. That would attribute the fact that I stand here today redeemed and saved because I am somehow more intelligent or more gifted than the person who walks around the mall today who rejects the gospel. It is not of my doing, it is of God. God who saves, God who chooses, God who elects, God who redeems, God who brings you to the point where you actually realize the need for a saviour. God our saviour. And Christ Jesus, our hope. What is that? We prayed it this morning. Christ, the firstborn of the brotherhood. He who was killed, but yet death has lost its sting, was raised from the grave. That is our hope. It is why we're able to set aside the things of this world. We realize we are saved for a purpose and that we have a hope to cling to, which is the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, the hope of a new body, the hope of the resurrection, the hope of the Lamb's Supper, the hope of standing before a holy, holy God, clothed in sinful rags and wretchedness of our own flesh, and God covers us with the grace and the righteousness of Christ. That is the gospel. Paul cites it here beautifully. I, Paul, Apostle of Christ Jesus, by commandment of God our Saviour and Jesus Christ. If we had time this morning, we could go back into the book of Acts and we could look at Paul whenever he's leaving Ephesus. And he cites the church. He knows he will not be back again. And he says to them, I am not going to come back. But I tell you this, your blood is not in my hands because I labor day and night in prayers and admonishing tears for you leaders. And know this, from amongst yourselves, he says, are going to be raised up wolves who are going to devour this church, who are going to lead you astray. Be on guard for those whom God has given you oversight to. So we take all that together and we realize when we come to read 1 Timothy this morning that we have to cling to one truth. That this book, this letter, this epistle of Paul is written to Timothy who is his servant. Next week we're going to be looking at who Timothy is and how he calls him the child in the faith. It is given to Timothy for a task that is nearly impossible. He has to go into the midst of an established church He has to go into a people that will not respect him for who he is. And he has to bring this charge and this command. That God does not accept your idolatry. God does not accept your love for money. 
God does not accept your love for costly apparel, your love for fornicating, your love for drunkenness, your love for deceiving, your love for walking around the marketplaces saying that you're a widow. In fact, you have no need for the offerings of the church and yet you take it and spend it upon yourself. There is judgment coming, church, he's going to say. And they're going to reject it until they hear this opening gambit. When Timothy says... This is not my words. This is not Paul's words. Who's just heard it or thought of it himself. This is the word of Christ given to Paul, an apostle, big A. This is the word of God commanded to you as a royal command. Through Paul, by God and by Jesus. There is no compromise. There is no issues here. You have to take it for what it says. There is no cultural context. There is no way of getting around it. And for us in this church, this is going to have to be the truth we keep coming back to. That as I read the hard-hitting concerns that were in the church in Ephesus, I know for a fact that they're in this church and every church. Because they are things of the flesh. And when we come to something that may pierce you, press you, or push on you, you have to understand it's not my words It's not even just the Apostle Paul's words, it's God's word. And as we have written here above my head, it stands for something. The word of our God will stand forever. It is not compromising. It is not an error. It is not culturally relevant. When it says that I do not allow a woman to teach or hold authority in office of an overseer or elder, it's not a compromise. It is against scripture. When it says things that's going to be very hard hitting. Like I do not want a woman to be dressed in costly apparel. But to be dressed in all modesty. That is in keeping with someone who proclaims faithfulness and godliness. That's going to want to be rejected by all of us. When he talks about love for money. When he talks about what it means to be a true church. We are going to want what it says up there. The church that we always wanted. But we have to realize that's the church that God always wanted. This introductory week is to give us this weighty opening gambit by Paul. Know that when we go through the next number of weeks. Because this will lose its power and authority I think. As we go verse to verse. As we come to hard hitting things. We will want to cling to. Well, but Gary it's by faith alone that I'm saved. Yes, it is by faith alone. But let's be careful we don't travel into a word called antinomianism. If you don't know what antinomianism is, it's something that is pressing into the church today. It is a theological word. What does it mean? It means anti-law. It goes all the way back to Calvin. It goes back to the Puritans. It goes back to people who say, I am saved by grace alone. I accept that. But everything that is of God's word when it comes to law, I'm not bound to it. They reject the fact that Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. They escape the fact that when we are born again, made righteous, and we have the indwelling of God himself through the Holy Spirit within us, he changes our hearts and our desires. He changes us to love His Word. He changes us to desire His commandments. He changes us to want to be an outward expression of holiness and godliness for those to see in the world. 
We desire to be above reproach. Not by our own doing so that we can boast, but by the internal workings of the Holy Spirit. We grow in Christ. And we grow into the sanctification process. Amen? That's the gospel. Faith alone. Christ alone. As we journey on that path, the reading of his word, our minds are changed. Our hearts are changed. Our desires are changed. We start to become more and more like an alien in this world. We start to turn away from past friends who desire to live a life of debauchery. Because we love a holy God. We start to turn away from worldly entertainment. We start to turn to truth and desire truth. We have to reject the commonplace of that word, antinomianism, that is everywhere today. Anything to do with righteousness, law. Anything to do with purity, law. Anything to do with this letter, this, uh, this pastoral epistle, they want to reject it. It's law, it's law, it's law. Certain theologians want to actually say that Paul didn't write this letter. They want to say that this word is an errand that's been changed by man. Remember one thing to be true. The early church fathers, when it comes to apologetics, were faithful to one thing. They expounded every verse of scripture. Whenever they were canonizing the word of God, they wrote commentaries on it. And if we only had the commentaries of the early church fathers, we'd be able to rewrite 95% of God's word. It is not an error. It is not changeable. It is his truth coming by a specific servant, an apostle, for a specific time, for a specific use, to tell this church to change. The great thing is we know that after this letter was written, the church did change. But the problem is the church went a different way. They changed the immoral lifestyle that they had. But they started to become pharisaical. That's what we read in Revelation when it comes to, to the church in Ephesus. He says, you have good doctrine. You do not have false teachers any longer, but I have this charge against you. You've lost your first love. If we become too clinical, if we become too much focused on simply knowing the Greek and the Hebrew and the verb and the context and lose our love of Christ, it is just as dangerous. So as he works through First Timothy over the next weeks, months and probably next year by God's grace we come back to one truth. It is God's word to change us. Not to make us a Pharisee, not to puff us up that we know the true meaning of his word, but that we want to be changed by his word in all humility and have reverence and awe for a holy God as we transition through this letter. Amen? Let's pray together.